Today on the show, we have Kyle Dobbs. It's always weird saying my own name <laughs> out loud, but <laughs> uh, we got Kyle Dobbs on the show. I have to say that I'm a huge fan of you, man. Uh, I found you probably before the pandemic, took the compound performance mentorship. I think I was like second cohort. You were and, one of the first ones, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I remember having like the quick little like 30 minute one-on-one call with you. And I'm like, dude, I lost my job. I did all this stuff. Like, what do I do? And you're like, take the mentorship. <laughs> but it, definitely the best decision I ever made. All the stuff you taught definitely helped me with everything I do today. And I've built from there. So yeah, just again, thank you. If you haven't taken the compound performance mentorship and you're a coach, you definitely should, but I'll, uh, I'll stop blowing you up here. So Kyle, how about you? Uh, tell us, give us the elevator pitch. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. And, uh, I'm definitely under the philosophy that it's like two, two Kyles are better than one. So we're like Kyle squared right now. And I feel like this is definitely going to be a good podcast because of that. Um, no, I, I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, you're definitely somebody that I've enjoyed watching like grow through the last three, three, three or so years. It has been almost four years, I think, since we first talked, which is crazy to think about. And, um, and it's just, it's been fun to watch you kind of go from like the, the more in-house employee based setting to like running your own shop and doing all these things. And, uh, I love your, your post, it definitely challenges me as well and uh, makes me think about things. And that's, I enjoy that aspect of, of social media more so than anything else. And um, for me, I've kind of give the short one. Um, I've been in the industry for just at 15 years, um, maybe a little bit over at this point um, as a coach, um, just a, a personal trainer. And then as uh, a manager, a multi-facility manager, a district manager, and then worked on the national level as a director for a few different companies. Um, and then about four years ago, um, just over four years ago, we decided, my wife and I decided to pack the kids up and, you know, move from New York where we were living at the time back to the Midwest and, um, try to slow things down a little bit. And I ended up starting my own business, which is completely remote. And I had no idea how to manage at the time and didn't really know what I was getting into, but, um, have slowly just figured it out through a series of mistakes and, and triumphs. And, um, and now I've got compound performance, uh, as a company LLC, which I'm primary owner of and have five employees under that business. And we've worked with over the last over 2021, we worked with over a thousand coaches, you know, within all of our programs, which was awesome. That was a big milestone for us. Um, and we also just launched a tech company and platform with the compound app where we're working on, um, a training platform for coaches is phase one and getting into gym management software and then corporate wellness down the road. And it's looking at a kind of a three, pra- three phase progression model with that. So I'm learning a whole lot there too, and, and getting to be just really stupid all over again, which is, uh, always terrifying, uh, but fun. And, and yeah, I mean, outside of that, I just, you know, I'm a dad, I've got, you know, two kids who are now eight and 11. And as we were talking about off air, it's, we, that's, that's my favorite thing to do, taking them to their, their sports stuff and their practices and, and everything else, listening to their, their stories about school and, and eating dinner and hanging out. And, um, my wife and I have been married for just over 12 years, uh, now, 
Um, she's my best friend. She's awesome. And we've got a almost two-year-old puppy who's a maniac. And that is Coach Bowser. If you follow me on social media, he's sleeping on the couch. I'm surprised we can't hear him snoring right now. I had to walk him before this and wear him down a little bit. So um, I literally that, just walked my dog before this as well. Yeah, <laughs> otherwise, he's he's nuts. If, he, if I'm on a call and I'm not giving him attention, he'll literally start eating the rug that's right by my desk. He'll just start chewing on it. It's just... Oh. It's mine. He's a mine. will grab this duck here for the people that can't see it. It's a blue duck, and he finds the squeaker and he'll hold it on my lap and just over yes. and over and over. I'm like, I love it. I love it, man. Yeah. Well, cool, man. I I am curious to kind of hear. So, I mean, you got your your kids and everything, and then coming from because you played you played ball in college, right? Yeah, I I ran. I originally went to to school. It was a weird story. I went to school for track. Um, I was a four hundred runner and played basketball through high school and got some smaller college offers and um, ended up going the track route and and walked onto the basketball team at the university that I was at. And my first summer of track, I actually uh, tore my hip labrum and partial hip flexor and kind of just it just kind of killed my track career at that point. I just never really got up to the speed and the comfort level that I needed for the events that I was running. Um, but I was able to continue on with basketball. And so, you know, so I stuck with that. I ended up having several more injuries. Um, I'm, I'm apparently made of glass was, was kind of my thing. Um, but I, I had two knee injuries and, and a shoulder injury, um, all through school as well. So I ended up basically spending a lot of time in the training room uh, and not a lot of time on the court, but you know, I'm the cliche story of uh, the, the guy who was always hurt that fell in love with the training process uh, and got obsessed with strength and conditioning, you know, kind of along the way. And um, I was also a pre-med major. So I was a double major um, in biology and chemistry with a minor in physical science. So that was also super intriguing to me uh, from that respect where I really was learning physiology, uh, anatomy and physiology kind of through the process of also rehabbing and training, um, which just kind of lit a fire under me, to be honest. And, and I ended up not going to med school. I probably didn't have the grades for it anyway, to be honest. I just, I didn't take school as seriously as I should have. Um, but graduated, got, had my undergrad, got my CSCS right out of school and um, started training. Uh, almost immediately, you know, from that point on and, and became really passionate about it. How'd you tear your hip labrum? What'd you do? So I was working on starts. So I was a 400 runner and right. in high school and through AAU, I was good enough that I didn't really have to come out of blocks. Um, as a taller runner, I just wasn't comfortable really coming out. I'm six, four, um, coming out of blocks. And you know, so I was, I was decent enough at a standing start where I could catch people kind of on the third split a lot of the time. And when I got into college, uh, everybody was just better. And I really had to work on that limitation of kind of my first hundred split where I was just getting, I was too slow out of the start and I was working on coming out of the blocks. And I don't know if I was just fatigued or, or what I was practicing after practice, of course, cause that's what young and dumb kids do. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of went in like that first phase of stance and my, my heel kind of hit the ground and I, I partially, I subluxed my femur, um, and kind of tore through a little bit of my hip labrum. I also had like an iliacus strain, a fairly significant one and a TFL, um, and just collapsed like a kind of a wall of bricks, you know, at that yeah. point. And, 
Um, it, it was pretty, pretty gnarly. It was, it was not fun. Yeah. Did you go the surgery route or did you just rehab? Yeah, it I got that? it. I got it scoped. Um, the, the labrum was the only thing they actually had. Everything else was just strained. Um, so they went through, they scoped the labrum and it was, ended up being like a five to six month rehab. Uh, and then I, I came back and I went into the playing ball and almost immediately had a full dislocation of my patella, a meniscus tear and an MCL tear, um, which Jeez, man, <laughs> yeah, like I, I, like a month, a month afterwards. And so I ended up being in, in rehab for almost 12 out of 13 months. Um, yeah, yeah. My, my kneecap was like behind my knee as I was laying, it was absolutely gross. Um, and yeah, I just never really came back from that. Like I was a practice player, you know, and, and, uh, a cheerleader on the bench basically is what it turned into. So, uh, but again, I wasn't ever going to be the star player anyway. So it was, it was just fun being on the team and, and doing all the stuff at that point. Yeah, definitely. No, that it's funny that you mentioned all this. Cause I, I actually, so I tore my hip labrum in track. I ran 110 hurdles and it actually started. So I got a, a concussion. They had us practicing cause it was raining that day. So they're like, Oh, let's practice indoors and let's go run hurdles indoors. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. So I'm like doing my thing. I'm like, this is kind of dumb. So I take off and I end up like running straight through. I crack the hurdle in half. And in doing that, it like pops up, I go flying, I smack my head, and then I wake up and I'm in the training's, tra- trainer's office. I'm like, oh, okay, like what's going on? I've got like blood all over the place. And they're like, you walked all the way down here. I'm like, I don't remember walking <laughs> at all. Remember, yeah. yeah. So having concussion and then, you know, now knowing what we know about concussions, it's like after that, and I got cleared and everything, everything just kind of started going downhill. And then it was like junior year track. I was running 110 hurdles and went over another hurdle and landed like outstretched, just same yeah, kind yeah. of thing, just like clunk. Pretty much what happened to me is with that. yeah, just overstrided and boom. Yeah. I just the only difference I didn't go surgery route. I honestly just I was dumb about it. I was like, I'll just stretch my hamstrings more. I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really have a choice in, in, yeah. in full transparent. They pretty much, uh, we had a sports med program attached to the university and they gotcha. pretty much, I went to the training room and she booked me for like two days later, basically. Dang. So see, I did it in high school. And so it was like, I guess, you know, I also were, didn't really talk you about had a it. Concussion, and they were like, yeah, just drive home. You're fine. You're okay. No, my mom came and picked <laughs> me up that day. They like That's called good. her. And of course, you know, she's like, I'm glad I bought the sports insurance. Like, geez, what the heck? <laughs> but yeah, man, I was, I had like 15 stitches across my head. Oh, I walked man. in and they're like, oh yeah, just go back to class. And I started, my grades started going down. Like couldn't pay attention to anything. And they're like, what's wrong with you? You're dumb. I'm like, uh, like drooling in class pretty much. Wow. Like, yeah. That's Kentucky high school. You know, what do you, what do you expect? I don't, I don't picture it being much different than Missouri high school, to be honest. With you. Yeah, exactly. Like we're, I think we're about in the same boat. Yeah. Everyone's competing for the, you know, worst in the country at that point. Like, <laughs> the flyover States. Exactly. But so. <laughs> um, I guess kind of getting from, you know, looking at your injury background and, you know, everything that you've done, you know, you, we've, 
you've gotten into PRI and some of these other you know types of systems, and I'm yeah, assuming yeah. you probably got into those because of injuries oh, that you yeah. had. I, yeah, I think right. there's definitely a bias there for sure. Definitely, I'm the same way. That's how I really got into those. That's why I went, you know, the rehab route. And I ended up going through my physical um, physical therapist assistant. I was like. I'm still hurting. I can't train the way I want to. What the hell do I do? You know, I've seen a bunch of PTs and it's like, I'm going to figure out my damn self. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I'm curious, uh, you know, kind of having this experience, what is your take on some of these systems nowadays? I know that's a broad question, but how, or like, how do you still utilize them and, or if you do at all? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I have had, I think the, the advantage of, because I've been in the industry so long, um, I've taken just about all of them to some extent, some much deeper than others, right? Where, you know, when I first got in the training, you know, going back to my, you know, I got my CSCS and started training. Like I immediately, you know, my, my wife and I moved to New York, uh, for her work immediately. So I, it's like, I had all this like athletic background and now I had a athletic specific certification and education base. And I was working in the middle of Manhattan in a box gym. Right. So it's like I had nobody to use any of this stuff on. So almost immediately I had to look into different education models and, you know, to find something that kind of suited more the people that I was working with. You know, I dove into like FMS first. That was like the big one, you know, back then we're talking at this point, like 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. And and I got I went through and I, I did the FMS. And, and you know, over the years, it's funny because I've actually probably done. 10 different FMS like live seminars because I even as a manager I would take groups of coaches to them you know through that process so mm -hmm. I, I did that one quite deeply I even I, I taught the FMS through our our employee onboarding aspect for New York so I worked with every new coach every month that was hired and taught them the FMS and the OPT model of NASM so I'm the overhead squad assessment and, and all those things so to, to age myself a little bit you know I went through all that stuff and you know, so I, I learned that, you know, fairly deeply. And, and then that obviously led to me wanting to divest time into other models as well. So I went into, you know, DNS first, because it was almost the complete opposite. You know, I kind of thought, well, it's like, okay, I know I, I've got a pretty good handle of this very structured system. And now I kind of want to understand what the other side is. And DNS was becoming a little more popular. And and all of a sudden I'm, I'm rolling around and crawling and, and, you know, doing all these other things. And, you know, so I took a few courses with that and, and found a little bit of utility with that, with some of the clients I was working with. And that led me into FRC and FRA, um, and ended up taking a few courses, you know, a few seminars within that and kind of learning their system to the extent of which it was practical, you know, with the people I worked with. And then that led me into, PRI and, and IKN actually at the time as well. And I, I took a few of those courses and um, took my primaries first. At that point, I had just started working at peak and Pat Davidson uh, was our education director. And he was basically like, Hey, take this stuff. Uh, and I was like, cool. You know, so I took all, all the primaries basically within a month span and just crammed them and did all yeah. at home, all at home work. Never, never got the schedule and in person for any of those. Um, and, and had the advantage of, you know, being able to, you know, I, I think Pat was a huge influence with this. Like I was learning and in kind of the same process, like we were training, you know, we were on the floor and we were working through 
programs. He was beta testing mass and, you know, mass one at that point. And we were kind of working through it and working on some prep work and some other things and utility for this stuff. And, you know, so I had the application process, you know, almost immediately with that, which I think, um, had I gone to a live seminar for any of those, I might not have had, you know, and, and I didn't really realize that until I went to my first live course, um, which was I and I, and kind of walked in and, you know, it was <laughs> felt like I was the only, like, I was like the only person there who trained basically. Right. Like, like I, I walked in and I was just like, Oh, like, you know, like <laughs> a lot of, a lot of khakis and polos. And, and I know exactly. Cool. How no. and, and again, there, there's nothing I contrary to popular belief. I have nothing against that, but I was the only, like everybody there was, was pretty much a DPT or uh, a Cairo. Right. And, and I'm just like, a trainer, you know, at that point I was a, a training manager, but I'm just a trainer. Right. And, you know, so I'm talking with them about like ways that you would, you know, kind of use these principles on a training floor. Right. And not just in the assessment, you know, itself, but actually looking at like progressive models and ways to kind of overload some of these, these things. And, and people kind of looked at me like I had three heads and I was just like, Oh shit. Like, okay. Like, my mind's always going to go to training and it's always right. going to go to stimulus. Right. So that was kind of my first indicator that like what we were doing, you know, at peak, you know, with Pat and, and some of the other guys, we also had the resilient team and, and, and some of those guys that was different than a lot of what was being even taught through, through the courses. And I took a few more courses, you know, over the next years. And, and then at that point kind of just got to where it's like, okay, like I I've kind of run, to the end of applicability for me, right? Like I didn't care that much about things going on above the neck level. Like I'm not like at that point, I was like, I'm not taking, you know, if it's above the head, I'm going to refer out, you know, <laughs> at this point for me. And that's just my beliefs again, not, not saying anything about anybody else's. Um, but it's like, for me, it's like, I'm a trainer. Like I, I have no personal interest in rehabbing people. I didn't go to school for, for as to be a DPT, you know, I, I like to work on a progressive model. So I'm always going to try to take these systems and use them within that realm. And my goal is to always get clients training as quickly as possible and, and to use the interventions that are going to get them there the fastest. And, you know, so now when I look at this within my own training process, um, I still use a lot of the concepts, but I use them within kind of my, like I work within a concurrent system. So I use them within like my secondary and tertiary you know, uh, exercise selections. Right. So if I'm looking at like a primary exercise selection, like those are kind of my big bilateral force production based lifts. Right. So those are going to be your trap bar deadlifts and your squats and, and what, what have you upper body. And for those, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to use, you know, the, the modalities and the strategies that are going to allow me to produce the most force. Right. Cause that's the goal of that exercise is, is output. And when I get into secondary models, like that's where I'm going to get into things that are maybe more focused on movement competency, mechanical tension, hypertrophy, getting in some volume, um, building work capacity, you know, from that perspective, building occlusion rates. Um, and, and that's where sometimes I'll see, I'll use things like, you know, stance related split squat variations or, or something of that nature, right. Depending on who I'm working with and what their goals are. Um, but I'm still going to use, variations that allow me to load, right? So that, that front foot elevated, you know, split squat where I am trying to get into like mid propulsion, right? 
I'm probably going to use a, a Hatfield variation so I could load the shit out of it rather than a few, you know, pink dumbbells by my side, right? Like sure. I, I'm going to find a way to add constraints and add stimulus and add load to this, to this variation. Same thing with like a single leg RDL where I want to work on, you know, hip lock on the top end. So I want to lo- work on internally rotating on the eccentric and constant and then concentrically externally rotating and getting into full extension. Like I've been playing around with like that landmine version that I've been posting lately because it, the force vector literally pushes you into it and then you have to push yourself out of it. Right. And, and that's a way for me to build in constraints that kind of force the patterning and and then the, the biomechanic, you know, aspects that I want to happen under load. Right. And it's a very controlled environment for me to do that. And basically when I get into my tertiary variations, now I'm looking at things that are going to be more stability based, right? So I'm removing more constraints, I'm decreasing intensity. um, And and I'm working on things that are probably even more movement competency driven. But I'm working on it to, you know, where there is more of a vestibular aspect, there is more of a spatial aspect, there's less constraints, I do have to stabilize myself a little bit more. And I have to control things a little bit more. So it is going to be a little more neuromuscularly driven from that perspective. And, and I'll actually usually use those as my prep work, right? Where uh, again, it's like, that might be something where I can just drive that sensory awareness for a few rounds before I get into my primaries. And then I get into my secondaries on like what an average strength session might look like. Gotcha. That was a lot. That was a jumble of, no, I mean, I, I loved every second of it. I think, I mean, obviously I think very similar, especially after taking, um, the compound performance mentorship. So, uh, I am a bit biased. So I'm like, okay, that makes complete sense to me, but I, one thing I do have a question of, and, you know, I think the, I talked about a lot about, and, you know, taking like Alex at first course and all of that, like going from these conscious based, you know, you're having to think nonstop about what muscles are working, the stability aspect, all of this, and then getting to this point where things are unconscious and you're just gripping and ripping, right. To some degree, or you're playing a sport and, you know, you're just having these things sort of that you've been working on hopefully in the gym and they display themselves on the the court or the field. And I'm curious, you know, what you utilize, if that's sort of your, your progression through a workout and you see positive changes, if there's testing that you utilize Mm -hmm. to see that carry over, um, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think, you know, one of the things that one of my goals with training and, and, is I do want to differentiate, you know, training from sport, you know, and there's going to be things that we train that will resemble, you know, actions of sport because we are going to work through some patterning. Uh, But again, there's much less variability within the actual training as there is within the sport, right? Like we know that uh, working on a Hatfield squat doesn't necessarily look like a vertical leap in basketball, right? Like there's no pendulum step. There's no, that's not the same thing. But we can work on the ability to produce force. We can work on tissue quality. We can work on some ranges of motion that might be useful from that perspective. And and kind of the same thing is we're looking at some of these more like stance driven, you know, split squat models or or whatever we want to call them, where these things are, for me, they're going to be much more exploratory and they are going to be, you know, essentially giving me exposures to different ranges of motion and different integrations, right? Like I know that if I can rotate my pelvis a little bit, I'm going to get more adductor magnus for stabilization and within that front leg. And if I rotate it the other way, I'm going to get more glute med. And maybe if I'm in 
AIC that matters if I want to do one on the on one leg or the other. Maybe if I'm not, I just practice both, right? Or maybe I just work on moving. And same thing, like a lateral lunge might prepare tissues for a defensive slide or a cut or a change of direction, but it's not the same thing, right? Like we know that again, we're not going to be absorbing or dispersing force at the rate of what a basketball player or a soccer player is trying to do when they cut the sprint, right? And change direction. We just want to be able to give exposures to those ranges, you know? So when I look at strength training, I do want to do things that will stress the tissues and the systems to an extent, uh, to what somebody's going to be encompassing during their sport. But at the end of the day, like they're going to pick up most of their exposures within the sport itself. Right? So if I'm looking at that, it's like one, I want to be able to watch them play and I want to make sure that I'm training the right things, right? I want to, I want to understand what their rate limiters actually are, right? Like if I, if I've got somebody who has uh, a rate limit, like they're, they have a hard time moving laterally on a basketball court. Well, that could be a lot of different things, right? That could be biomechanically, they don't have access to a range of motion they need, right? They can't drive enough internal rotation to drive external rotation and push, right? That might be, they're just not strong. So they're slow and it's a force production based issue, right? That might be, they don't have good capacity. So they just slow down as they fatigue, right? Or they occlude, they, their glute med and their QL cramp up, right? And their TFL cramps up as they're trying to go through these ranges. That might be, they have a hard time actually yielding and absorbing force to disperse, right? So they need more eccentric orientation of those tissues and they need to be able to handle those things ballistically right? For stretch reflex and, and sh stretch shortening cycles, right? That might be again, that they have a hard time pushing off, right? And producing power, right? So if I'm watching that process and I, I have to identify like where that person is actually limited, right? Because there's a lot of different ways that I can train a lateral shift or lateral movement, right? That might be actual laterally hip shifting and just exploring ranges of motion and getting stable within those could be isometrics into, into those positions, just to give somebody exposure into them could be a kettlebell hip shift, right? Where they have to absorb force and push back could be a heavily loaded lateral sled drag, right? Where they really have to push against the ground and produce force through full. I don't know. Right. But I want to make sure that if I am applying some kind of intervention to that athlete, that I'm addressing the right thing. So the, the test is, is often for me, it's like watching them play their sport if possible. Mm -hmm. And two, like watching them facilitate these movements. And that's where even like my assessment process is very specific to the individual in front of me's actual task demands. I don't necessarily have a set assessment, but I have categories which I can pull things through, right? And, and be more specific to that. Um, and then as I'm testing it over time, I'm looking at training numbers. And then subjectively, I'm also talking with the individual about, you know, their confidence in these movements and, and how they feel about them. You know, do they feel prepared, et cetera. Right. So there, there's definitely, it's a broad question and that's probably not a super um, detailed answer, you know, from that perspective. But the, at the end of the day, for me, it's like, I need to understand, you know, what I'm actually going to be training. To, to provide the right interventions. And, and I think rather than, you know, and rather than going by an algorithm, you know, that a system teaches like that might may or may not be specific to what that athlete's actual limitation is. I need to actually make sure that I'm watching them do the thing they're trying to do and perform the tasks that they're trying to perform.
I think there's merit to just, so for your example, like a lateral movement or like, what if you just make them lateral shuffle more? What if you just make yeah. them do that more? Like, I think, especially when you've gone down the rabbit hole of whatever systems that are models that you're looking at, you kind of forget like, well, Hey, just make them do it more and just see yeah. if there's a competency aspect. Cause again, going off of what you're saying is like, they're going to learn more from the sport itself. So just make them do that. Oh yeah. <laughs> and see where it gets you and then go, you know, that should be like step one almost. Yeah. And it's like, I was, you know, my, my eighth grade, my eight-year-old eighth grader, my eight-year-old had three basketball games this weekend and none of them can, none of them laterally shuffle in a game. They just sprint beside the ball handler everywhere they go. Right. So it's like, if I'm working with like a 10, 11, 12 year old, who's having trouble with this movement, like there's a good chance they're just not good at it. And it's, it's a skill acquisition issue. Like you just said, if I'm working with a, a 27 year old, you know, pro player in Europe, then I might be dealing with something else because I know they've had the exposures, right? And and that's even where like within my own training, like I will throw a lot of these little things into like extensive based warmups on my conditioning days as well, where it's like, you know, if I want to train the ankle complex in the foot, right? And and again, give it exposures to different force angles, different vector angles, et cetera. Like one of the warmups that I do myself that I give a lot of my clients, you know, whether they're gen pop or athletic populations is, you know, we'll get barefoot and I'll have them, you know, skip backward shuffle, lateral shuffle, lateral shuffle, and just five minutes continuous at a slow pace and, and trying to stay pretty bouncy off the ground. Right. And, and through that, it's like, they're having to manage their center of mass in a lot of different ways, right. Between the forwards and the backwards. And then laterally, like we're going through pronation, supination cycles, like we're getting tibial rotation, we're getting push off, we're getting some glute beat in there. Uh, you know, so like little stuff like that, I think is incredibly value, valuable within that. And, and for me, like, I never look at a singular training day alone in a vacuum. And I think that's what social media has. I think that's where social media kind of defines people poorly a lot of the time, right? As we'll see like a workout and you're like, oh, well, that person only strength trains or that person doesn't do this or doesn't believe in this. And it's like, no, man, that person just had a minute to cram in a bunch of shit, right? Like you don't know what they do you know, outside of that, like you're looking at one training day out of one training week out of one block over the course of a mesocycle, right. Uh, and, and over the course of a macro cycle. And it's like, that doesn't tell us a full story at all. That's like picking up a book and just reading a random page and trying to figure out what it's about, you know? And, and I think that's hard is because people don't have those, they don't have those conversations, right? Like I went through, you know, the last two or three years, a bunch of people like saying like, I don't believe in this system anymore. I don't understand this system. I don't use this system. It's like, man, I use it all the time. You know, it's like, I just don't use it the same way you do because I don't work with your clients and my clients have different training goals and I prefer different applications. Right. And, and I think that's, that's one of the hard things is, you know, again, the application of these systems is always going to be more important than the information provided. You know, like we can all take the same three day seminar. You're going to be in that room. Like we just talked about like my experience, like I went in a room with probably 50 other people and every single person in there has got a different application process based on who they're working with, what those people, you know, again, prefer what their perception of their treatment is. 
and then what their actual task demands and goal selections are. And, you know, for me, like I don't work in the rehab realm. Like I don't like when somebody comes to me with an injury, I refer them out. Like I'm not, I don't try to be that person and I don't even want to be that person because I think that training is incredibly boring. Like I don't like it, you know? So it's like, that's again, that's my bias. Right. So when I'm using these things, like I'm, I'm trying to find a way to utilize these positions and orientations and, you know, concepts like AFIR and some of these things to drive more outputs. Like I never want to use them as regression models. Like I'm always trying to use them as regression model or as progression models. And, and I think that's where a lot of people get, I don't want to say confused, but they don't recognize what I'm trying to do. And, and I'm honestly like, I don't really explain it that well, because if you see it, you see it. If you don't, you don't. And, and that's just a, like, I don't care enough to have conversations about it anymore <laughs> on, on, on Instagram. Like I, yeah. I'm happy talking with you about it, but like right. talking in the threads or DMs about this shit is just too much now. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. And you know, it is a it's a gray that you have to live in and it's, it's tough. There's not a name for it either. You know, I think that if there was a sort of name, you know, we can't call it like functional training anymore because that's been demonized and it's terrible. Like, you know, it's, there's no word to describe, you know, the mod, what it is, the gray that this all is. It's just, it's just, I guess, progression and some regressions of training. Yeah. And I think that's, it's that's training. what I found. Yeah, it's training. Like we're lifting weights, you know, and yeah. I think that's that's what's hard for me because I'll have conversations with people and, and you know, they like truly believe that like, I'll, I'll say the acronym, that like it, that PRI invented the gate cycle. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, right. like I can show you like gate cycle references from 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, no, like, it, it's like, they're like, oh, you're doing PRI exercises. I'm like a split squat. Yeah. <laughs> it's been around yeah, for a while. Like, I've seen Arnold do split squat. Was Arnie a, a PRI guy back in the day? Like I had no idea doing a front foot elevated split squat. It's like, these are exercises, right? And there's, there's varying levels of nuance to them, but it's like the thing that has always bothered me about these systems is like, we're hyper-focused on trying to force ranges of motion or joint actions that should just happen naturally, right? Like when you go into hip flexion, you will have an action of internal rotation at the femur. Like I learned that in NASM, right? I learned that in FMS. I learned that in, in FRC. Like that's not just a PRI thing, right? Like they all teach this stuff. We're just looking at different application models, you know, from that perspective. And, and everybody acts like their system owns these joint models. And it's like, not like undergrad anatomy and physiology will tell you this. Like, it's not, this isn't new stuff. This is just somebody's spin on the thing. Right. And, and I think that's where, you know, for me, it's like you, it's hard to like perform certain exercises without somebody, you know, attuning it to a system when it's not a system, it's just movement. It's just, like you said, it's just lifting weights. Like if I look at most of the machines in my planet fitness, like they're biomechanically suitable to a lot of these models. Like I, I look at a chest press with, it's got an elevated foot spot. It's a, it's literally, uh, you know, a, um, a, a chest press of pronation, right. You know, from that perspective. And I'm just like, you know, this is all, 
it's just the human body, right? And, and we're looking at it through these different lenses from these different systems. And it's like, most people should just focus on at that point, stimulus outputs and, and kind of look at it from that perspective where it's just like, you're, you're worried so much about the acronyms in the applications and the minutia that you're not applying any stimulus to your clients. Like they're not going to get better uh, on a lot of these things. And, and I think like the novelty will, will maybe provide something short term for them, but long term, you're going to get no tissue adaptation because you're not stressing them enough, you know? And I think that's where I don't want to say the industry, but like the, this little corner of the ecosystem or industry or, you know, the, that, quote unquote, corrective exercise movement. And it's not just PRI, it's, it is all of these systems, like a glute bridge from, F, from FMS is only going to get you so far too, right? Where they all kind of like, they fail athletes who are actually going to go on a court and have to produce force and manage force over time. And, and that's, that's not moving people forward in my experience. Yeah. 100%. Well, it, you know, I always tell people like, you know, would you rather have perfect mobility and posture for the rest of your life? Or would you rather have the muscular endurance, the strength, the hypertrophy for the rest of your life? You know, like what's going to make you live longer probably. And they're like, Oh, let me think about it. And of course, a couple of people say posture. I'm like wrong. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. You, we gotta, we gotta, we need to talk a little bit right now, but, yeah. but yeah. It, it's just in working in hospital and rehab settings, and just seeing, especially as we age and sarcopenia, losing muscle mass, it's like, why, why am I going to give someone three months of this 90-90 hip lift when they probably need to just do some training, get some tissue adaptations, and that's going to carry them over way longer. I can get them into a fitness program. I can do all these good things. And that might literally add some years to their life, potentially. Well, and that's where like, even looking at posture, you know, and I, and I, I've enjoyed a lot of your posts on this as well, where it's just like postural issues or compensatory postural strategies, whatever we want to call them. Like in my experience, like are almost always a strength or capacity based issue, right? Like whether that's, you know, again, like a, a movement strategy under load, Right. Or whether that's a movement strategy, just trying to deal with, you know, gravity, you know, from that perspective or your own body weight. Right. It's like, you know, we, we know at this point, like anybody who's like significantly overweight, it's going to be a wide ISA with posterior compression, literally because their belly is dragging them forward in space. Right. You know, so if I'm a coach at that point and I can lay that person on the ground and have them do all the 90 nineties with reaches and the bear position stuff and the sideline stuff that I want to try to, again, get a different, you know, thorax orientation or, or whatever. But if we don't lose the weight, they're like, they stand up and they're right back where they were. Right. You know, so it's like at that point, it's like, okay, well, I've got somebody who's overweight. So that's one that's dictating what their posture and their, and their structural interventions are from a strategy perspective. And two, they're also at risk of metabolic disease and high blood pressure and, and you know, many other cardiovascular based issues. Right. So at that point, it's like, just help them lose the weight. Look at the bigger right? picture. Like, like literally just look at the bigger picture and help them lose, like put your balloons back in your pocket <laughs> and, and help them lose the weight. Right. Give them better strategies. And, and, you know, it's stuff like that, that it just, it drives me crazy about this industry because we're so obsessed with 
I don't, I don't know if it's like showing value. Like nobody wants to be a personal trainer. They don't want to be a coach. Everybody's like a posture specialist or a, a movement specialist or, or biomechanics specialist or a performance-based coach or whatever. We're personal trainers. Like we, most of us took weekend, like three day certs, you know, mm -hmm. and paid a couple hundred bucks. Right. And sure. There might be an undergrad in there or whatever, but it's like help the person lose the weight and get stronger. And it'll, it'll probably like fix itself over time. And you've done a lot more good, right? You, you've done the low hanging fruit, you're getting a bigger return, you hit the bigger rocks, etc. And, and I think that's where, you know, it's, we focus on the most complex strategies sometimes because we're so interested and invested in this industry. And it's like, our clients need the simple shit. Like it, it's for the, for the most part, you know, again, um, especially if you're working with general population, like you're working with people who just don't move, like they just need to move. It's like you, you were talking about with the the defensive slides, like they don't move well because they never fucking move. Yeah, 100%. Like get them to move, you know? And I, I think that's where, you know, they're not competent, you know, supporting their own bodies in space, you know, whether that's because of their body mass or because they're just not strong enough to support their, their bodies, like get them moving get them used to that, give them like stress them in an appropriate level. And, and I think that's just, it's almost too simple for a lot of the industry, unfortunately. Oh, hundred percent. Like it, it always cracks me up, especially you use a, you know, a breathing strategy, that 90, 90 hip lift. It's like, Oh, we got to change. Cool. But it doesn't quote unquote stick. And it's like, Oh, you need glasses. Oh, you need to go, <laughs> you need to go get a splint. And it's like, dude, why don't you just like, maybe they're not strong enough to literally stay there. And that like yeah. new change that you got, like the yeah. tissue is just not able to adapt to it. Why don't you just train it? It just, I, I knew I needed to shift my own content when I would get DMS and people would be like, Hey, I've been doing this for, you know, three years. I've got glasses. I've got, you know, dental splints. I've, I've you know, I've got elevated elevations in my shoes and special insoles. And, and I'm like, so you've done all these things. You've been doing it for three years. And they still don't work. And you want me to try to provide you with more of this stuff. Like say that out loud. Like how much have you strength trained? How much like actual like hard aerobic work have you done? Not breathing drills, but actually like challenging aerobic work, zone three and four work, build up your actual aerobic system, build up your capacity. Maybe you'll breathe better. Right. You know, and it's just like, th these are the things that it's just like, for me, all of those things are just band-aids, right? Like it's a human, like that person has a body. They might have asymmetries. We all have asymmetries. Like that's well-established. Like we don't need to go into that. Like everybody's asymmetrical to the extent that they're asymmetrical again is probably just, they've been compensating through strategies for their entire lives instead of getting stronger. Right. And, and like, and they're just rotated you know, whatever, you know, I think that's just something where it's like, let's use strength training interventions to rotate them back and get them in, you know, into, you know, better alignment or, or whatever, a better position to exert force. Um, and I think that's just where it's like, all those things are the, these passive interventions and they might work if somebody's coming out of a, a rehab base and they're, and they're, you know, again, they're starting below baseline of their normal physical capabilities but it's like, we're trying to apply rehab strategies to an otherwise healthy population. And that's a regression model. And that's shitty, you know, in my <laughs> opinion. Like, I just like, I, 
it just, and that's shitty. <laughs> and again, it's like, it's funny. It's like, because I, it, and I have nothing against PRI and I don't blame PRI for this. Like PRI has restoration in their name. Mm-hmm. It's very clearly a rehab model. So why are we using it on uninjured people? Like that's problematic for me, just from a foundational perspective. And mm-hmm. if you work in rehab and you want to use it, that's great. But if you're a trainer at Equinox working with otherwise healthy individuals that want to work on body composition and get stronger, there's probably better routes for a lot of this stuff. It doesn't mean you can't look at these movements through a biomechanical lens, right? Like you can have somebody do alternating reciprocal exercises or stance related single leg work or whatever, but you can do it under load. Like you can give them constraints and load them. You can, you can work it within a strength-based, you know, application. And I think that's what we're missing a lot of the time. Yeah, I completely agree. I am curious about, so I talked to Joel Smith last week and one of the things he was talking about is, you know, using some of these weightlifting strategies. And I'm sure, you know, if I had him on the call right now, he'd be, we'd have a good discussion and he doesn't think this like 100%, but he talked about, you know, deepening um, compensation wells, as he said. So I'm imagining he's probably talking about, you you got a collegiate athlete that's like, I'm going to go get strong. So I'll be better at my sport. Does a bunch of back squats, gets strong, but then he slows himself down or potentially creates more compensation. I was curious, you know, would you agree with that? Or what's something that do you utilize some of these, um, I guess, biomechanical models to prevent that from happening. Yeah. And and I think that's where like Joel and I like probably agree. And we've talked about this as well is because I'm that basketball player who got really strong, yeah, but like moved worse. Right. And again, there are injuries on top of that too, but there was a pretty direct correlation with me, like getting stronger and like having a worse vertical at that point in my life, you know? And, Um, and I think that's where, again, like we have to understand that different tasks require different strategies to be successful. And we have to respect that. And a training strategy that benefits a strength-based athlete is, you know, obviously probably not going to be completely correct with a capacity-based athlete or an elastic-based athlete, right? Mm -hmm. Like those are two different training tasks and, and the training should look different from that perspective. And, you know, so I, again, I think for me, it's like, that's not saying back squats are bad. That's just saying that's a misapplication of a tool by a coach. Like that's not a coach looking at the athlete and what they're actually trying to do on a basketball court or volleyball court or track field or, or whatever. That's just looking at them and saying, oh, we're going to back squat because, you know, the my university invested, you know, $2 million in this huge weight room and we've got 20 racks, you know, I got to fill them up, you know, and I, I think that's where if somebody does have a clear strength limitation, cool, we'll get them stronger. But if that's not their limitation, increasing their strength isn't necessarily going to have the return on investment from a training perspective that you hope it does. Right. Like, and that, that again, like my assessment process always begins with understanding the task demands first. Like if I'm working with a runner or I'm working with a soccer player, or I'm working with, you know, a strength-based athlete of some sort, I have to understand what their sport demands. And if I'm working with a gen pop, I have to understand what their lifestyle demands, right? Same thing, just task, right? 
And, and at that point, like I can understand the physical and physiological qualities along with the psychological and, and cognitive tactical qualities that are going to be required by that sport. And then I can look at them and their abilities respective to those things. Right. And I might have a basketball player who isn't strong enough. Like they, they might be a, a hundred and you know, 80 pound power forward who gets boxed out of bounds every time a shot goes up and can't stay on a spot and whatever. And that guy may have a 44 four inch vertical and be super elastic, but it doesn't matter if he can't ever get off the ground. Okay. That might be somebody who needs to squat a little bit. That might be a big area of opportunity for that athlete. Like they just might not be strong enough. They might not be heavy enough. They might need better tissue quality from that perspective. They might be, they might need to be able to resist force better. Yeah. Right. I might, but I might look at another athlete who is incredibly strong, but they're slow. They can't get off the ground and that's their limitation. And that person, like no amount of strength training is going to get them better at that. They need to run and jump. They need to become more elastic. They need to get better at those skills. Right. And, um, again, I might have somebody else who just gets winded after two minutes of playing and they just have poor capacity. Mm -hmm. And that's somebody I need to work aerobic threshold work. And, you know, cause they, they're breaking down because they're always fatigued, you know, and that, that's something that I need to work on for that athlete. And, you know, for, for those three athletes, like they all have performance issues, but they all have performance issues for very different reasons. And they're all going to have very different training strategies based on that. And, and I think that's where, for me, none of these things is good or bad, like working on plyometric work. That's not bad, but it's not great for everybody. Somebody like someone who already jumps really well, but has a different limitation. You're just doing what they're already good at. That's not necessarily going to get them better at something else. Same thing with an athlete who's incredibly strong, but can't move laterally, right. Or has a hard time with just any general locomotion, right. Or, or coordination aspects of things like, yeah, increasing their back squat a hundred pounds is, is cool, but did you make them a better player? Right. You know, so it's like, those are things for me where like, I think Joel and I would agree on that aspect where it's like most of what I see in the training process is just misapplication. Like when things go wrong, it's not because X exercise is a bad exercise for basketball players. It just wasn't the right exercise for that basketball player. And it's hard for coaches to separate that thought process because it's much easier to just, you know, again, try to find a, a an enemy or alienate an, an inanimate object from that perspective. You know, and it's just like, is that we have just to think deeper like, than that. Yeah. Is that just human nature or you think, would you blame that on social, social media like this? I think it's human nature, man. Like it, the, humans do very poorly at qualifying things they don't understand. And again, like, if we want to go like into like sociology or anthropology, like we could go into like religion and everything else with this. And like, <laughs> well, we don't explain when we can't explain things. We just were like, Oh, well, uh, su such and such up in the sky, like made it happen. Right. Like that's yeah. what it turns into. We, you know, we, we, we tell a story about it. Right. And sometimes the, the easiest story to tell is that back squats are bad for you. Yeah. Good and evil. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just like, comes back to like these basic foundational human nature based things. And, and it's just like social media, I don't think has made anything in the industry worse. I think it's amplified a lot of people's opinions. You know, it's like I, for some, as someone who worked in gyms long before social media and like smartphones, right. You know, I, I remember getting my first, you know, uh, iPhone, like four years into my career, you saw all the same stupid stuff in a gym setting. It's just nobody else did like mm -hmm. every gym staff had 
their their five by five guy, their Bosu guy, their mobility specialist, their Yogi Pilates chick, right? I hate to classify, but they were usually girls, uh, you know, and, and it's just like everybody had the corrective exercise specialist. I was that person for a long time, right? Where I would get all the hurt people and I hated my job, you know, but I was very busy, you know, and it's just like, everybody had their bodybuilder, you know, it's like you saw the same archetypes in every gym that you went into and every staff that you saw. But it's like that they were these own little like micro environments. You know, there was no global social media where it's like you could, you know, see what people were doing half a world away. Like I spent the morning getting trolled by some dude in India who doesn't even follow me. It is like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. Like it just like social media tribes is what like literally into. trying to challenge me to do a, a live debate. I was like, I don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. I don't even know who you are. You don't even know what you want to debate on. You just want to get on and argue with me for no reason. Like, no, I'm good. You know, it, it's the weirdest thing. And it's like, social media just amplified that aspect of things where it's like, now you just see that it's everywhere. And you see that you have all these hundreds to thousands of people that agree with you. So it strengthens your own bias, you know, within that too, that it's just made tribes larger, you know, from that respect, it hasn't necessarily, I think made new tribes, the tribes themselves just got much larger and more powerful. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Do you still do you get hyped up when people come at come at you on social media, or are you like pretty jaded now? At this point, I did. I mean, it depends on it. I want to be clear because it's like I, there's plenty of people who disagree with me mm-hmm. that I can have really good conversations with, and, and that I have a lot of respect for. You know, and, and like, cause that for me, it's like, I, I'm very aware that I do things differently than people, but I'm also very aware that my way of doing things isn't the only way of doing things, right? It just, it works for me and the people that I work with and I enjoy doing it, you know? And, and I think, I think that's where, again, like the, the amount of people over the last few years who have been viscerally upset just by me doing something different is actually crazy to me, you know? And it's just like, this is my business working with my clients and posting on my page. Like, yeah, what's, what's going on? You know, why are you personally that, offended? <laughs> yeah. Why are you personally offended by that? You know? So it, it's, it's, it's a strange thing. Um, but most people I can have a pretty decent conversation with and we can respectively just disagree based on our own context and still be friends and still have a very amicable relationship, you know? And, um, but if somebody's coming at me just to like troll, like I just block them now. I don't even talk to them. Like it's not yeah. at that point, it's not worth my time and it's not worth my energy because it does like, I, like I do get upset about it. You know, mm-hmm. I'll definitely admit that like it's something that bothers me and it'll just stick with me, you know, for the the entire just, day. I'm like, yeah, you can't like, shake it. Yeah. I'm just <sighs> like such and such, you know, from pennsylvania thinks i'm an idiot you know and it's, it's just toxic, like i'll never meet know? this person you know and i'm just like yeah it's so at this point i just like i'll just block people i'm just like you know it's not worth the conversation if you're coming at me with you know ad hominems and, and things of that nature like we're already starting off on the bad foot if you if you if you're asking questions and we're talking back and forth mm-hmm. i'm perfectly happy to not agree with everybody as long as everybody's respectful within that process Exactly. The respect part is huge. I've had plenty of people who are 
maybe respected in the industry, but they come at me with names and I'm like, all right, like, I'm not going to give you any of my time. Like what, what was wild. the point of that? Over yeah. a difference in opinion, right? Because again, it's like all Granted, of this stuff works. Yeah, so, true. You know, it's just like within with a good practitioner or a good coach, it all works because the, the biggest thing in any of these systems working is honestly client buy-in. Mm-hmm. If the client believes you know what you're talking about and they will do whatever drill, what whatever it is, whatever system it is with a high level intention, they'll probably get better over time. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it, it's just like they'll make improvements, you know, and I think there's a lot of self-efficacy and self-determination theory kind of built in that process as well from a client facing side. But it, it's just like most of the people, because it's like uh, it's like when we talk about like um, all these different diets that work, but they all just put you in a calorie deficit. It's like all these training interventions work because they get you training. Yeah. You get stronger. Yeah, I mean, you, you got stronger. Cool, Weird. man. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's like you learned how to like manage force and gravity better. Surprise, surprise. Right. And we can call that mm. a COA or inner abdominal pressure or some postural intervention or diaphragmatic, whatever. You know, it's just like you got stronger. Yeah. Do you think there's something to, you know, even because they'd say, you know, in the past hundred years, like male testosterone has decreased over time. Do you think that that is like potentially um, more of like just a movement based thing to some degree? Like we just move less. <laughs> I mean, it definitely could be. I mean, there, And again, like that's definitely not my area of expertise. I, I think yeah. if we look at autonomics and we look at movement, and the kind of the combined aspect. And this is something like one of my favorite books ever is Sapiens by Harari. And he talks about kind of the de-evolution of the human species through hunter gatherers to agricultural, you know, revolution through the industrial revolution, through the technological revolution. And basically from the agricultural revolution on, we became a more sedentary population. Right. And, And even looking at, the the hunter gatherer to the agricultural that was when again we became more geographically stable right we moved around less globally right because now we had farms we had industry we had you know even economic systems that kind of sprouted up within these little tribes and obviously now we get an industrial and now we have machines doing our work for us and we're just managing those things and we're doing less overall work and then we get into technological and now we're doing even less overall work because we have access to things like the internet and social media and worldwide news and all this stuff and even and mental do, capacity work yeah right i think there's a lot to be said of the human species right now just as a whole being highly highly stimulated with information inundated with information at all times but not getting enough physical activity to go along with that right and And I think, you know, as organisms, you know, like most other animals, right? Like when you look at any other animal, like when you look at like Sapolsky's, like why zebras don't get ulcers, right? Stimulation precedes action, right? So psychological cognitive stimulation precedes physical or physiological exertion, you know, at almost every level, right? And you know, and that's what our sympathetic nervous system is. It's fight or flight, right? Like it, it's the spurn movement, right? Not, not sitting there and scrolling on your phone and getting mm-hmm. mad at somebody half a world away. And I, I do think there is a lot of 
stress and stimulus load with very little exertion. And I think that's the combination that's probably the worst for us, right? As we don't move a lot, that's very true, but we're also overly stimulated at all times. So we're hypersympathetic, but we're getting no outlet from a physical or physiological perspective. And for me, that's like a systemic mismatch, right? Yeah. If we look at autonomics, we look at physiology and biology. And, and I think that's where, you know, a lot of this stuff, it, like you, you called it toxic and, and it is, you know, I think it, like I, and, and again, this is, I, I think it's a Polskyism, but this might be from behave, but it's like the human brain isn't, was, isn't made or isn't meant to know what's going on thousands of miles away. Yeah. Right. Like it's really not meant to know what's going on outside of our own vision in a lot of ways. Right. Like it's, it's a, it's a prediction based model where it's like, we're, we're supposed to be able to really kind of manage our own environments extremely well and the mm -hmm. variables and, and the other players within our environments. But us understanding that there are wars and famine and things happening in other countries across oceans, let alone in other States and other cities. Right. Like there's not much, like that's just stressing our system with no outlet, like things that we can't do anything about from that perspective that we're getting stressed about all the time. And, and I think that's like social media is layered another aspect onto that too, because now you, you can interact with those people, but you can't come to solutions oftentimes. Yeah. Right. And, you know, again, this is way off the training sphere, but it's definitely something that I think it, like, I want, I, I think about stuff like this all the time, you know, where it's just like, I, I look at my dog fucking sleeping on the couch right there. And he, he knows like when he's going to get fed and played with and walked. I'm just like, man, like that's sometimes I, I just like, man, if we could switch places for a day, I'd probably be much happier. Yeah, no. Well, and I'd like to add to that aspect too, you know, thinking about other places, all these global events, but I would even add with our own training, thinking about the name of the muscle that you're activating oh, yeah. the joint actions associated with that. If you're in a right alignment, like your body's not supposed to think about that like, at yeah, all. It's conscious incompetence is a dangerous place to be. Right. Honestly. Like, and, and, and conscious competence, like you said earlier, that like, that's not the answer. Like if, if you're going through your, your training session and you're having to think, okay, I need to, I need to adduct my femur at about 15 degrees and really try to drop into my hip capsule and drive rotation as I'm going through the eccentric action or early propulsion to mid propulsion of this front foot elevated split squat. I need to rotate my rib cage the other way, another 15 degrees. And I need to exhale my way up to close down that left oblique. It's a shitty exercise. Yeah. hundred percent. It's not going to carry over to much, mm -hmm. right? Again, like you, you can work through some movement stuff and you're going to feel a nice little burn in your, in your right glute and, and, and adductor potentially. But at the same time, it's like, are you going to be one of those people that's like trying to walk and thinking about like squeezing their glutes at late toe off? Right. Like just, just let it happen. I have just, to remind that move. all the time. Yeah. yeah. They're like, well, I didn't feel this muscle. It's like, it's okay. You did it. You know, yeah. you even took a video of yourself and it was, you were stacked, you were whatever. Yeah. It looks you didn't good. fall over. It did yeah. something happen. Something happened. Yeah. Exactly. Like do this for a month and then let's talk. And yeah. you know, let's see if there's an adaptation. Like, don't don't worry about it. But, all right, man. I I know we're getting a little close on time here. I I do have one more question for you, especially as someone who's been in the industry. You know, I think one 
realizing that the industry is still pretty dang young and it's still the wild west to some degree but what is something like what's your biggest prediction in the next like 10 20 years what do you think is going to oh, happen gosh. like where are we going <laughs> now, i can barely i can barely stay a year ahead um Going against I, I, what Sapolsky said, you think about this. And yeah. <laughs> no, I, I do think, you know, I, I think one of the good things, because again, like, I don't even think social media is all bad, be, and contrary to what I kind of just said, because I think in general, the average person is more aware of fitness culture. Um, yes. Like, it, it's like, I think when, when you're now talking to your everyday general population person, they have a better understanding of why exercise is important than you can't than wear yoga pants. Social media, yeah, yeah you can't wear right? yoga pants and not know about exercise. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, and, and and again, like maybe it's too much information. Like, should you, if you're like a stay-at-home mom of three that has no, like, no general knowledge of fitness except you go to a couple like Orange Theory classes a week, but you're trying to watch your HRV seven days a week, is that necessarily a good thing? Like, maybe not. But but I do think that just in general, people have a better understanding of not necessarily health, but why health is important. And those are two two different things. Uh, so I do think there's going to be because of that more curiosity from your average person. Uh, so I actually do expect I think the fitness industry as a whole will grow. Uh, and, and, and again, it's always hard for me because, you know, it's even like talking about these systems, right? Like when you're in the industry, like you think PRI is this huge thing that everybody knows about. And, and then you realize this is like 0.5% of 1% of like what, like it's a very small secluded little corner, right? And you think it's important because that's your tribe and you've got a couple, you know, thousand people who support what you say, but the reality of it is people are doing things all over the place that have never heard of the acronym, have no idea what a diaphragm is uh, or, or even where Nebraska is on a map, you know, from that perspective. Right. And it's just like, these things can be right and they can be important, but they're not necessary for, for a lot of people to just get in better shape and to get healthier overall. So I, I, I do think, you know, just the, the industry will continue to expand. I think um, again, with a lot of the other things that we're seeing, at a political level related to health and insurance and like the hospital system and, and even the pharmaceutical system to an extent, I think you will see a more preventative proactive thought process geared towards health just by your everyday consumer as well, because it will probably end up being more affordable, uh, potentially than retroactively trying to address things, uh, right. down the road. Um, so like, I think it's still overall, it's good. Like I, I'm fully aware that like a lot of the, a lot of the things that I see on a daily basis that, you know, or arguments I get in or, or whatever, the conflict that, you know, I find myself in, none of it matters, you know, in the grand scheme of things. And that's, you know, for me, like that's, it's humbling, but it's also like very gratifying to know that it's like, okay, like a lot of these things that I, that I think matter, I get upset about or whatever. It's, it's literally only because I'm one of these people who is invested in the minutia and other people are just invested in other details of, of things. And, but most of the people out there, like, like I go to a gym 
every morning where it's like they have classes and they're filled with 20 people, five, six, seven, eight, and they don't talk about any of this shit. And those people are in great shape. Yeah. And it's just like, it's like that for me is actually like something that I really enjoy where I'm just like watching people like move and do shit and exercise. They're not thinking about anything except getting through it. They're just having fun or they're just having yeah. a good time. Like they're yeah. getting challenged in, in, in a, in a positive way and they're having fun. And, um, and it's like that, that for me is much more gratifying than like going to a personal training studio where everybody's on the ground doing these really technical movements. Yeah. That, that was one thing talking to Joel, you know, him talk establishing his warmups, you know, doing games and even talking to oh, Jake yeah. Tura. Have you found anything my last question, my promise. Have you found anything useful in remote training to like promote a game as a warm-up? So it's if if I have people in a team sport environment, yeah. I can work with them on that. Um I'll usually do like kind of that plow. And I I call it basically elementary school PE is yeah. like a is literally a circuit that I some put on ed. a preps, a prep circuit that I put on some of my athletes, like stuff where they'll go through like high knees and butt kicks and arm circles and you know but it's if i am working with like someone in team sports i'm like hey go play tag with somebody like go kick a ball around you know it's like like do things like that that are going to be inherently reactive where you don't have to think Mm -hmm. you know and and you can just kind of let your your body take over in space and um because i do think there's a lot of value to that like that's something like joel and i've talked about even jake and i've talked about where it's just like I love his like concept of like spike ball as a warm up. Like it's like yes. I, and like even like um, Austin Jockham's another guy who who posts a lot of stuff where they're just like jumping over stuff and balancing on stuff and doing you know somersaults and all this. It's stuff. awesome. It's like, like, yeah, and it's just like I mean, what's a warm up? What's the the point of a warm up is get warm, right? It's mm-hmm. like I a, a few months ago I posted myself doing like figure eight drills with the med ball, and I was like, mm-hmm. is this a valuable warm up? And made made a. Uh, a yes, no poll on it. And it was about 50, 50. And it's like, well, it got me warm. Mm-hmm. So you probably yeah, got some it, range of motion. <laughs> yeah. I had this shift my hips. I went through full femoral internal external rotation. Like through that process, I was rotating my rib cage contralaterally. Like the, the fact that, you know, some of the, the biomechanics people said no, when they watched what was actually happening was like, Oh, you don't actually know that much about what you're talking about. If you can't see these patterns within this exercise. Right. And you know where I got that from my kids, my eight-year-old skill development class when I was watching him work with his basketball coaches. Mm-hmm. I was watching all these kids do it without thinking about them, watching their hips shift and like rotating their bodies around. And I'm like, it's fucking great. Yeah. That's something I really want to get into, especially talking to Joel. I, I really, I'm going to start looking at some high schools and see if I can get into some, just like be a assistant coach or something like that. I think that would that be cool super stuff. fun. And I think high school kid, like that's where you want to get kids. Yeah. Because at the college level, you've you've got basically like the survivorship bias when yeah. you get into college, like even small colleges, like the, those are players who were very good at, at the at a lower level at that point in any sport. There's Mount St. Joseph here in Cincinnati. It's a D3 school and it's yeah. still super competitive. It's like, yeah, it's like geez. those like any level of collegiate sports, like you're, you're getting people who were very good at a lower Mm -hmm. level. Right. And it's like, 
you can make a difference, but you're also working with people who are already kind of in an upper echelon of athletic yeah. ability probably. And, but if you can get people in high school and maybe even middle school, just with some foundational stuff, right? Like just get middle school people, kids doing like an, an extensive warm-up series. Like mm-hmm. I remember even back in high school, like we'd go through like all the like high knees and butt kicks and skips and all these things, but none of us knew why we were doing it. We thought it was just a waste of time. So we just half-assed our way through it. Now looking back and I'm like, oh, it's like extensives to intensives. Right. You know, it's like, I wish I would have spent more time doing that stuff. Like, you know, w- with some intention behind it, instead of it just being like, oh yeah, this is the the five minutes before, uh, you know, practice that we're just kind of wasting time. And yeah. getting loose. But, you know, that's the, again, making it fun, especially for kids. I remember yeah. uh, running cross country, we would have these days where it was like every other week we would do this instead of Indian runs, we would do this like circuit where there was a Frisbee, a soccer ball, all this different stuff. You had to like throw the Frisbee, run, pick it up, throw it again. And like those days, I mean, I wasn't amazing. I, I, you know, I broke 18 minutes on my 5k, which was, you know, pretty good, but there are still guys. I mean, they would crush me, you know, hitting like 16s, 15s on 5k, like super fast. But by the time, whenever we would do these like interval based sport type drills or like workout days, I would crush everyone. And like, I always got like most athletic, like pinned on my shirt. I was like, cool, great. But it's like, that meant way more to me. There was more like of a competition aspect to that. And it was, I don't know. There's just something about like actually having that game versus I'm just going to trudge along and run these tempo runs or (laughs) this, you know, 60 minutes of, duration and just oh, like so boring <laughs> did you have you ever read born to run mm-hmm. that book it probably haven't. came out it probably came out like i've heard of it i just 10 haven't. years ago so so that the book actually started like the barefoot running movement which is whatever right. i don't really have an opinion on that but the the tribe that they based it off of in south america was this tribe where i mean the the men and women in this tribe like they they would run 20 to 25 miles a day, like through the rainforest. Right. And they would do it. They had these, I forgot what they were called, but like these small balls that were like probably the size of like baseballs or tennis balls. And they would kick them the whole time they were doing it and try to keep them on the trail and pass them back and forth. And they made, they gamified the process Hmm. and they made a game out of the running process and the hunting process through that and the foraging and whatever. So that reminded me of that because it's like they that's what kept them occupied and kept their intention high through that process. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, I think that's that's why trail running has gotten so big mm-hmm. in comparison. I mean, if I go run, I only run trails because yeah. if I run on a soccer field, I'm going to I can't right. do it anymore. It's yeah. right. maddening. It's yeah, it, it is tough. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's. um. Yeah, you you need a you need a distraction. Maybe and maybe that again. It needs to be a task. Like yeah, like like maybe that's flow state based. Maybe that's whatever. Like there's probably some some flow aspect to that where it's just like you need to find a way to distract your mind or be thinking about something else through that process, Um, or else all you're going to be thinking about is how much it sucks. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Like like when I ran track, like I like there's nothing worse than watching like a 3000 or a 5000 on a track 
Like, can you even God. imagine that? Like, you're just watching the like just run this track for 13, even, 15 laps, you know, even 800s, man. Like, yeah, 800s, just, it, it's uh, tough, you know. It's, 400, I could do. I, I was fantastic at 400. You made me run an 800, and I was like, nope, I'm, yeah, count yeah I, ran, I ran the four and the eight, but anything oh. over an eight, like a mile, like, no, like that third lap was fucking brutal. Like, I wanted no part yeah. of it, you know. It's just like there's. I, my my oldest who just turned 11 like watching kids that age run a mile is like it's you're just like it never ends you know and i'm just like oh, they're short little legs it's just yeah more, it's and you feel so bad for them i'm just like oh god yeah Oof. he hey. comes out he's like he's like man i don't like the mile i was like nobody likes the mile like I, nobody i don't like it either like, I, don't, I don't like watching you do that <laughs> yeah i was like that is seven minutes of torture bro like, that's painful to watch <laughs> well kyle hey man it was awesome having you on the show i really appreciate you taking the time i know we went a little bit over but um yeah how about you hit us with the uh the socials hit us with any programs you got and we'll we'll sign off there yeah so my most of what I do is definitely on Instagram. Um, we're slowly trying to get on YouTube's tough, man. I respect anyone who can make YouTube happen because that that's a time spend. Um, but we're trying to get onto that uh, and do more longer form content with that. Um, but my my personal Instagram is compound performance with an underscore after it. Um, then we have the the compound app, which is Get Compound um, at Get Compound, and that's that's going to be more of our technology based you know, trainer solution based, uh, page. Uh, and then our website with all of our stuff is just www.compoundperformance.com. And you'll find everything there. We have individual programs. We have group programs for both education and training. Uh, if you want to ever want to know more about that, just shoot me a DM. It's the easiest way to reach me probably. And then I can direct you to the right places after that. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kyle. And thank you all for listening. And we will see you all in the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Broken to Beast Protocol. This is a program that is meant for you. It's to help you gain muscle, get jacked, but without putting all of the excess stress on your joints. We've got video tutorials for every single exercise. We have a self-assessment to make sure that you're doing the right warm-ups and exercises for your body. We really try to take the exercise and build it out so that way it is set for your body type versus trying to make your body fit to the exercise. So again, you wanna check this out over on Instagram. It is at broken2beast, that is broken, the number two beast. Check it out on Instagram, join the newsletter for it. It will be out this month in May. Don't miss out on it. We'll have an early bird special for all those folks that have been waiting.